welcome to the Sydney Ideas webinar on climate change and unsustainable development. My name is Joel Negan. I'm the head of the School of Public Health within the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. The Sydney Ideas public talks uh, are conducted by the University of Sydney uh, on topics that are of importance to us uh, as a community in Sydney, in New South Wales, in Australia, and globally. Uh, this one is presented by the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney uh, as part of our 90th birthday celebrations this year in 2020. The school was founded in 1930 as the first school of public health uh, in the country, indeed the first school of public health outside of Europe and North America, uh, and a school that has been tackling health challenges for 90 years. Uh, I'll do a quick uh, introduction uh, and then we'll hand over to our panel uh, of speakers um, quite quickly because I'm very much looking forward to hearing from them as well. Obviously, if we find ourselves uh, in 2020, uh, COVID is consuming all of our oxygen and all of our attention as public health thinkers and practitioners. It is all COVID all the time. But it was only a few months ago that bushfires dominated the headlines and the public consciousness. It literally consumed the air that we breathe. These twin hazards, COVID and the bushfires, have placed public health at the front of public debate and made us debate here in Australia in particular what kind of society we can live in, survive in, and where we want to be as a society. Of course, these twin hazards are not unrelated. They both emerge from unprecedented human intervention into our environments. They both emerge from unsustainable developments. They both hit the vulnerable in our communities especially hard, as public health threats almost always perniciously do. They have short-term and long-term impacts and they test our conception of community, families, local communities, states, and federal. So this session today embraces this wider challenge of unsustainable developments and climate and environment. We have three great speakers who will present evidence and perspective on the challenges ahead of us as a society as we approach our next summer season. All three speakers are based at the university's Lismore campus, the University Center for Rural Health and all bring a critical regional perspective on this issue that is often missed uh, when we talk about these issues. Uh, our first speaker today is Associate Professor Jeff Morgan from the School of Public Health uh, and the University Center for Rural Health. He has more than 25 years experience in epidemiology, environmental health, uh, policy engagement, and education. His research in environmental epidemiology specializes in the use of state-of-the-art biostatistical and geographical information system techniques applied to routinely collected health data. Uh, he works on a number of critical areas around bushfires, um, heat, built environments, and health. Our second speaker is Dr. Joe Longman, who's a research fellow at the University Center for Rural Health in Lismore. So he's a social scientist who works across a diverse range of rurally focused qualitative and mixed methods research and evaluation. She's done a lot of work on uh, the community recovery after flood project uh, in northern New South Wales after the 2017 floods in the Northern Rivers area. Uh, she's currently leading a project 
by the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment. Our final speaker is Dr. Veronica Matthews, also from the University Centre for Rural Health. She's from the Kwandamuka community, uh, the Minjariba community of North Stradbrook Island, and she's currently a Wingaramura Leadership Program Fellow at the university. She's passionate about improving health and well-being for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through community-led research and leads the Centre for Research Excellence in Strengthening Systems for Indigenous Health Care Equity. Uh, thanks, Joel. Uh, uh, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, I'd just like to say thanks to the uh, Sydney Ideas Forum for the opportunity to present today. Australia's landscape is, is shaped by fire. We've known that uh, for, for, for the history of Australia. Bushfires have immediate health effects. Uh, the summer bushfires are an inherent feature of, of temperate Australia. Over the last 50 years, there's been around 430 deaths from the direct effects of fire fronts. And the greatest loss of property and human life occur during relatively uncommon and severe bushfire disasters driven by extreme and anomalous weather. Um, the highest danger to people is on fleeing the fire. And there's a whole range of injuries and trauma obviously associated with fire, but there's also inhalation of smoke at the fire front. Um, and it's complicated by increasing development around urban and rural interface near bushland. Bushfires can have a range of water, soil and ecosystem impacts as well. Erosion of soil leads to loss of storage capacity in water catchments, chemical contamination can increase nu nutrient load and lead to algal blooms. Uh, there's regrowing uh, vegetation can decrease water runoff in the catchments for many years. And of course, we've all seen the ecosystem disruptions that have occurred uh, with an estimated 1 billion animals killed in the 1920 Australian fires. Uh, bushfires are, are increasing our exposure to fire smoke. Uh, fire smoke is, uh, consists of a range of pollutants, including particulate matter and a range of chemical compounds. Uh, and fire smoke pollution can cause exposures to large populations across wide geographic areas. Um, we know that bushfires are likely to increase with global warming. Fires are increasing globally. Fire weather is increasing and predicted to get worse. And uh, there's huge greenhouse gas emissions associated with fires. The uh, uh, recent Australian fires emitted 250 million tonnes of CO2, almost half our annual emissions in Australia. Fire smoke has a range of human health effects. There's small and immediate immunological and stress-related changes to the lungs, blood, heart and blood vessels. And these lead to broad scale population effects with some people or groups being at more risk than others. Those with a medical illness like chronic lung, chronic heart or chronic vascular disease are at higher risk. Um, pregnant women, uh, infants and those in the older age groups that are also at higher risk, lower socioeconomic uh, groups are at higher risk, and there's some uncertainty about early life exposures 
to fire smoke and the long-term impacts. Uh, most of our information about air pollution and health comes from urban air pollution, which is at relatively low levels over long periods of time, whereas the pattern of fire smoke exposure is quite different to that high exposures over days, weeks, or as we saw in the recent bushfires, over months. In the recent megafires in Australia last summer, there were 34 lives lost. And we should remember, of course, the, the huge amount of destruction that occurred and that loss of life, with 3,000 homes destroyed and 8 million hectares of land burnt. The trauma experienced by the affected communities, including including serious risk to life, homes and livelihood, have ongoing psychological, physical health, social and economic impacts in those communities and more broadly. But there's also been a whole range of health impacts from fire smoke from the 1920 fires. Uh, recent studies have estimated the health burden attributable to bushfire smoke in Southeast Asia from those fires was around 417 excess deaths and over 3,000 hospital admissions that occurred because of the fire from that smoke event. And population exposure to bushfire smoke, it was almost an order of magnitude greater than the last previous decades from that 1920 smoke event. So it was quite an anomalous episode. One of the ways of controlling or trying to control bushfires, out of control bushfires, is prescribed burning. Um, land management interventions are aimed at reducing harm caused by fire with the specific, specific aim of saving life and property, with saving life being paramount. Hazard reduction burning has been highlighted as a land management tool, an important land management tool in every bushfire inquiry since 1939. Uh, the 2009 Victorian inquiry recommended that 5% of public land uh, be burnt to reduce fire intensity. And uh, the Australian recently reported that the New South Wales Black Summer fire inquiry will recommend substantial increases to hazard reduction burning. But it's important to look at the evidence and the public benefit of hazard reduction burning, including the effectiveness of burning and the feasibility of doing burns safely. Um, and of course, it's important to consider smoke pollution because hazard reduction burns do produce uh, smoke that can uh, expose large populations. So the evaluation of effectiveness of interventions is central to good public health practice. Uh, hazard reduction burns, as I was suggesting, um, have been identified as having a range of health effects from smoke. The May 2016 has a reduction burn event in Sydney that uh, exposed the population of Sydney to extreme air pollution over six days was estimated to have uh, been responsible for 14 excess deaths and around 90 hospitalizations. And the most serious impacts of, of, of a health prevention intervention uh, need to be considered. So how can we reduce our uh, exposure to smoke? How can we reduce the health impacts from smoke? There's a range of information available on how to how vulnerable groups particularly 
should uh, should aim to protect themselves during smoky events. Um, people with pre-existing disease need to have their personal uh, health information plans, health management plans up to date and then in medication with them. It's important to reduce exposure uh, with some recommendations to stay indoors. So there's a range of information available on the web and more broadly about uh, uh, reducing your exposure and minimising the health impacts of fire smoke. But longer term, we need to learn to live with fire and improved fire management is one of the important ways we're going to have to do that. We need to understand the fire, how fire interacts with human activity. We need uh, community education programs, housing and land use uh, policies that reduce exposure to fires. And land management in particularly fuel management, is a central part of bushfire management. But there's multiple, sometimes conflicting views on the implementation of that land management. The air pollution risks need to be evaluated in the wider context of the effects of bushfire and community safety. But managing smoke is integral to planning hazard reduction burning programs. And that requires close collaboration between health, environment and fire management agencies that's essential for improving community well-beings. It's important to note that a recent study in the US identified that the mortality associated with wildfire smoke will double by 2100 and that the increased smoke pollution over the next century will likely offset the gains of reduced pollution from other sources. So thanks to everyone. Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, and we'll uh, move swiftly now on to Joe. So good, after, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much to Sydney Ideas for this opportunity. So before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm coming to you from today, the Wijibal, Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation, and to pay my respects to elders past, present and future. So Jeff's just described there a very clear link between climate change um, and physical health and also mental health. And it's my job on the panel today to briefly talk through a case study of an extreme weather-related event, a flood, and the mental health effects um, of that. So as researchers, um, who we're rural researchers, Jeff, Veronica and I have the incredible privilege of living and working on the beautiful far north coast of New South Wales. However, this part of New South Wales is also a known hotspot for disaster declarations, particularly floods. So our staff at the University Centre for Rural Health, we're active social and professional members of the community here. And when in 2017, the Northern Rivers suffered a huge flood following Cyclone Debbie, it was our own community that was affected. Almost all of the rain that we had fell in 24 hours and it inundated the major population centres and it caused terrible damage. For many areas, it was the worst, uh, the most severe flood um, as, the, as the worst flood on, on record. So damage from flooding in this way to the built and the natural and also the physical, uh, the physical environment and to physical health tends to be immediately evident. But floods can also harm mental health at the time of the flood and also afterwards. And these harms can be substantial. 
So as an integral part of the community and a key local health research organisation, we felt strongly compelled to do something at the time of the flood. And so we developed and implemented a community recovery after flood study, a cross-sectional survey six months after the flood and also a follow-up two years after the flood. And those surveys aim to measure the mental health of the community after the flood. And to all of this work, we took a very strong community academic partnership approach to the way that the study was de designed and implemented, as well as the way that we disseminated our findings. So over two and a half thousand people took part um, in the first survey and of those 500 people took part in the follow up. And what this slide is showing you that um, almost all of the respondents to the first survey, so 91%, were affected by some kind of flood exposure. And what we mean by that is um, the home of a significant other was flooded, the suburb was flooded, the non-livable areas of your home was flooded, the livable areas or your business or farm was flooded. And we were able to compare those respondents to respondents who didn't have any sites damaged or, or flooded. And almost half of our respondents to the first survey reported exposure in three or more of those sites. So an unsurprising finding from our work is that the more people were exposed to the flood, the worse their mental health outcomes. And here's a simple graph that shows that. So the red line here um, is a line showing anxiety and you can see that um, for, for respondents who had one exposure, around 7% of those people had probable anxiety. And that compares with 49% of respondents who had five exposures. And this is a really important relationship, the relationship between how exposed you are to an event like a flood and your mental health outcomes. Um, given that floods are predicted to increase in both frequency and intensity. So maybe um, not such a, so, uh, a predictable finding, I guess, was that respondents who were socioeconomically marginalised were more likely to have flood water in their home. They were also more likely to be evacuated and they were more likely to be displaced from their home. And I want to just say a bit more about displacement because being displaced from your home, especially for a long time, has particularly negative mental health effects. So in our survey, those respondents who were still not home six months later um, after the flood, they were twice as likely to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress anxiety and depression and twice as likely to still be distressed about the flood when we compared them to people who were displaced for a short period of time so just three or four days or so so socioeconomically disadvantaged groups were more likely to be flooded in their home and more likely to still be displaced six months later and veronica is going to pick up from this and talk a bit more about this in a moment so I mentioned at the start that we did a follow-up study and the findings of that follow-up showed that the mental health effects of flooding are still being experienced by people two years after the event. So most of the mental health outcomes had reduced a bit over time, but actually, interestingly, they were still very much evident for people who'd been exposed in comparison to people who were not exposed to the flood. 
Um, and actually, the the still distressed measure was was increased. It increased over those two years for the 500 people who took part um, in the in the follow up survey. So these findings about this kind of long tail of mental health effects are in line with the international literature, and they really illustrate an important point about not removing support from communities too soon after an event like a flood. So I don't want this presentation to be too gloomy. There were some important positives to report from the study that we did. Um, for example, it was very common for respondents to describe the incredible community spirit that really got them through the flood experience. And some respondents were able to describe some positive flood stories to us um, around changes that they'd made to their lives or changes in perspective that they'd had following the flood. Sorry, I also want to share that in general for our respondents, those who reported higher levels of social connectedness and sense of belonging had less risk of negative mental health outcomes than respondents not reporting that kind of connection. So there's something very important about being socially connected. So my key messages this, this afternoon are around um, the fact that floods affect mental health as well as physical health, and that effect can persist for a long time after a flood. That there's a disproportionate effect across groups, and it's important that we bring an equity lens to all of this kind of work. And finally, that in general, those with higher levels of connectedness had fewer negative mental health outcomes. And the implication of that really is around interventions which may develop social capital, which may be key to helping support develop preparedness and um, recovery in communities. Thank you, Joel. Great, thank you very much, Joel. Um, Veronica, over to you. Great, thanks, um, thanks, Joel. And I also would like to acknowledge that I am on Bunjalung country and pay respects to the traditional owners, the Ridgeable Wyabal people. And my thanks as well to Sydney Talks for allowing us to share our work a, a bit more broadly. I just wanted to preface this next stage of the discussion by highlighting First Nations holistic view of health. It's more than just physical and mental health. It encompasses health of our land, our culture and our community. So we, we are deeply connected to country, so much so that if country becomes sick through climate change impacts or environmental degradation, then Aboriginal people also feel the sickness themselves. So our, our traditional lands uh, are among the fundamental determinants of our good health and well-being. So in addition to, to close connection with country, there are a couple of other factors too that, that can lead to disproportionate effects from climate change. And that's the fact that we do have a higher burden of disease, generally poorer access to healthcare and, and lower socioeconomic status. So coming back to the case study that, that Joe has just um, talked about, we did see the disproportionate effects. So uh, Aboriginal respondents were more likely to have their homes flooded, be evacuated and exper experience that lengthy displacement. And they were also more likely to, to report symptoms of distress, anxiety and depression. And on top of these personal effects, Aboriginal respondents were also more likely to report damage to a home of a love, loved one. So this indicates that their extended community networks were also living in the flood zone. 
And it's this close community network, so a form of social capital that is generally beneficial um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community as it provides family and cultural support. So when a flood or, or any type of disaster impacts on the whole of community, it's, it's like a double whammy or, or even a triple whammy considering the level of pre-existing Ill, Ill health and economic deprivation that exists within our communities. So I wanted to, to touch on this some more, this idea of social capital, of how um, community connections and cohesiveness can work to build resilience to, to disaster impacts. Now, social capital is, is one of a number of other forms of capitals that interact um, together to, to influence how disaster resilient and disaster resilient a, a rural community is. And they include things like human resources, natural um, resources, physical infrastructure and technological resources, and financial resources. And research has shown that, that social capital is linked to, to positive health and well-being. So as a result, it has been receiving increasing attention in disaster preparedness and management planning due to the recognition of the value of, of close social networks for logistical, financial and emotional support. Those, those handy sort of resources to have during and after um, traumatic events for individuals. So in our flood study, we looked at social capital amongst the different respondent groups by measuring level of community participation, that is what people do, and that can be things like um, informally having a chat with a neighbour or um, volunteering, um, and also how people feel about their connection to community, such as their feelings of belonging, trust and, and optimism. And social capital theory suggests that the more participation, the greater the feeling of connectedness, the more collective resources people have to draw upon, which positively then influences mental health and well-being. So our survey results on the whole reflected that, that those with more social capital have um, better mental health outcomes six months after the flood. However, there were differing levels of, of social capital amongst respondent groups. And um, as the, the table there on the right-hand side of the screen shows that Aboriginal respondents reported lower levels of social capital. However, this, this isn't to say that, that social capital is not important to them because um, as the table on the, the left-hand side shows, those Aboriginal participants that reported a greater level of community connection and, and feeling of belonging tended not to report post-traumatic stress. So this, this inequity in, in social capital, like any form of capital, can present a problem in terms of climate change adaptation strategies and the ability of a whole community to prepare for and bounce back from weather-related disasters. However, um, a simple strategy to, to tell somebody to go and, and boost their participation in, in community um, isn't likely to, to work. As I mentioned, there are, there are strong bonds within Aboriginal networks, so the, the family and cultural supports, um, the type of supports that, that people use to get by. Um, and while this is important for wellbeing, it doesn't necessarily translate to social mobility, meaning to, to get ahead in life. So to do that, social capital needs to extend out to other social groups, which can be difficult if there's systemic racism or exclusion, um, perpetuating inequality and, and poor mental health. Just a couple of points, my um, take home messages, if you like, is to understand how resilience 
operates within a community, um, a system levels focus and grassroots approach, I think is required to plan actions that move beyond individual change intervention, which is highly dependent on individual capacity, opportunity and, and resources towards group level change strategies that can involve everyone regardless of, of circumstance and build a whole community's social capital and underlying resilience. And such strategies must be developed in partnership with Aboriginal communities, just to ensure um, alignment with, with cultural values. And I think Indigenous knowledges and voices have been pretty much ignored in, in health policy for, for a while. Um, our existence over the, the last 60,000 years in this country suggests that that we have more to offer that Indigenous knowledge could be a critical foundation for climate change and health solutions. And there are great examples out there, um, Indigenous-led initiatives on country, cultural burning, that simultaneously address um, health, cultural, environmental, um, economic and social needs, and ultimately benefits the whole community. Therefore, I, I, I feel that participatory approaches are particularly critical. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're approaching the end of our um, uh, seminar today. I'd like to thank our three speakers. And, and I think there's been some uh, fantastic commentary that, that brings together a whole bunch of complex areas around equity, uh, around climate, uh, around disaster, uh, around resilience, around social capital, mental health. But obviously, these are, these are complex issues that are going to continue to, to face Australia uh, and, and the world uh, and the ones we'll continue to be working on as uh, a university uh, and within this faculty of medicine and health. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.